Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. I am Ivy, the younger sister, and today we're going to be talking about trauma again. (laughs) So we are making our facts of the day about the topic for a change. And my fact of the day is that one of the ways that trauma has really stuck with me over the years, in spite of all of the work that I have done to heal from it and recover, is that I still have nightmares every single night, pretty much. And I have since I was 15, quite a long time to be having those kinds of nightmares. That's what, 20 years? Yeah, right? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so yeah, that's that is uh, that's the way that trauma has stuck with me the most is just those nightly reminders of things that I have experienced and been through and the horror and the fear and the damage that the trauma has caused. It's gotten better. I am now at least capable of lucid dreaming. So I at least know when I'm dreaming and I can have some control over what's going on, but the nightmares have still not gone away. I hope someday they will, but so far they have not. So far they are old friends that just stick there in my psyche and never go anywhere. I think that's very much why uh, trauma is a healing journey. It's not just something like, oh, look, I, I did the work and it's done. Check that off my list and move on with my life. It definitely continues to affect you in so many ways. I am Autumn, the older sister. And as Ivy and I were trying to come up with our facts of the day that tied into trauma and how it you know, continues to hang with us today and how it's changed us, I honestly couldn't come up with anything specific. Because for me, I feel like trauma is an integral part of who I am. You know, because I went through traumas during my formative years, because I experienced for such a long time, it literally rewrote my destiny. It rewrote who I am. It created a new me. And so for me, trauma, yes, it does continue to stick around in minor or I guess major ways, depending on the the symptoms you're referring to. But the biggest thing is it's just part of who I am now. It's just me. And there are echoes of my trauma all the way throughout my life in probably ways that I will never, ever recognize because they shaped me so intimately. Yeah, that is a really interesting point that I've definitely thought of before as well, is that I have no concept of who I would be without the trauma that I've experienced. I have no concept of what you would be like or whether we would even be this close if it was not for the trauma that we went through. I think trauma really does shape who you become as a person and it shapes aspects of your entire life, what you end up doing for a living, the types of relationships you have with your partner, with friends, with your family members, with your kids. Trauma, it really does shape so much of who you are and who you become. And the earlier you experience that trauma, I feel like that's even more so the case. It's so wired into you. It's hard to fathom what life would be like without having gone through those things and without the work that you do to heal from it as well. I think that's part of why I love that concept that a lot of mental health advocates are out there pushing for, recognizing PTSD as a form of neurodivergence, because it very much does change who you are and how you operate, partially because of the trauma itself and how it shaped you, but also, like Ivy said, because of the work you do to adapt to the trauma and to heal from the trauma and to overcome the things that you went through. And the, the crazy thing is with that, it doesn't just change you, it changes 
generations. And that's what they're starting to discover is trauma is generational. So two, three uh, generations down the line, you have people having trauma responses that never even experienced the trauma because that's how much it shapes you. It doesn't just affect you. It can affect your grandkids and possibly even your great grandkids. And I think this is one of the things that is not talked about enough in the trauma world and healing from trauma is the fact that this is, for most of us, a, a lifelong existence. It's part of everything. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. The truths that we just don't hear a lot about when it comes to healing from trauma. You know, there are things that if you're going through trauma, you probably know either consciously or subconsciously, but we just don't seem to talk about them a lot for whatever reason. And I think that first point to jump into here is that even defining what trauma is can be really, really hard to do because a lot of what we end up doing is comparing our experiences to other people. And I, I know growing up, one of the things that I often heard, and I don't know if kids these days are hearing it, I hope not, but one of the things that I often heard growing up anytime that I would be expressing something that was bothering me or something I was going through, there would always be some, I'm sure, well-intentioned adult that would say, but you know, there's always people that have it worse than you. And I think that makes it really hard to even define what trauma is because, okay, so if other people have had it worse than me. Does that mean that what I experienced is not trauma? Does that mean that I am not allowed to be hurt by it? What if I find somebody who's been through less trauma than me? If they've been through, you know, less difficult times, does does that allow me now to feel traumatized? And I think that makes it really confusing and it's almost and it's definitely gaslighting. I think there's also an aspect of guilt tripping involved there as well, which is basically you don't get to define what you went through as trauma unless you were at death's door because of it, essentially. And I think that's further complicated by the fact that trauma is different for every person because two people can go through the same event and one person will experience that as trauma and the other person will weather that event just fine with minimal uh, reactions and minimal lasting imprint on their life. And so that complicates it even further. So sometimes you do go through something and you get fucked up from it and you know somebody else that went through the same thing and they seem to be doing fine and weren't affected by it. And you start wondering if it's something about you and maybe it wasn't trauma. And I do think that's a, a big thing in our society too, is that idea that, well, you weren't at death's door, you know, hands weren't laid on you, you weren't actually raped. It's not that big of a deal. And it really downplays it. And then we internalize that idea that, oh, I guess it isn't that big of a deal, which is really horrible for your healing journey. Because then what happens is all of that turns in onto you, because you're still experiencing these symptoms, these symptoms are valid, and your experiences are valid. And what happened is real. But when everybody's telling you you're misinterpreting it and they're invalidating that, a lot of us end up turning that into ourselves and we think, oh, well, I must be broken then. There must be something vitally wrong with me that I couldn't deal with this better. And I think that's, that's extremely damaging to so many of us out there. I think what it really comes down to at that point when it comes to defining what trauma is, is that we need to stop comparing 
our experiences to other people so much and define what it means for us individually. Because yeah, there's always going to be people that have it worse than you. There's always going to be people that haven't had as hard of a time with it. And like Autumn said, there could be people that went through the exact same thing as you and maybe they're fine and it really messed with you or vice versa. I remember once when I was quite young and since Autumn basically raised me, uh, she gave me a lot of interesting and hard lessons. And I recall I come home from school one day and I was complaining about a friend of mine because they were upset about something. And I thought it was so stupid that they were upset about this thing because it seemed so small. And Autumn told me this story, the sock story that she completely forgot she even told me, but it left a huge imprint on me. And I try to remember it now as an adult when I find myself making those comparisons. So the story is, there's this woman, she goes to church and she's sitting there, she's listening to the pastor talk and the pastor is talking about basically trauma and healing from it and forgiveness and, and you know being able to forgive yourself and be gentle with yourself and all of those things. And at one point, he asks for members of the congregation to stand up and say, you know, what what are they struggling with? What's traumatic for them right now? What's a really hard thing that they're living with at the moment? And this woman that's been sitting there listening to the pastor, she's been through a lot the last few years. Her husband died of cancer. She had a child that died in a uh, in a car accident. She is dealing with the terminal illness herself. She's very sick all the time. She doesn't have a whole lot of support because a huge portion of her family is now gone. She has been through the ringer, but she doesn't stand up. She doesn't talk about what's going on with her. She's weathering her storm in silence, but she's listening to these other people stand, who are standing up and they're telling their story. And this one woman stands up and she's sobbing, tears streaming down her face. And what this woman is struggling with is that her husband keeps leaving his dirty socks all over the house and she just can't handle it. So this other woman who's been through all of these things, these losses and these chronic illness, all of this stuff that she's been through, now she's pissed. She's enraged because like, who, who the fuck do you think you are? That's the only thing that you have going on with you. I lost my husband. He's gone forever. And you're upset because your husband's leaving dirty socks all over the floor. So after the sermon, she goes up and she talks to the pastor about it. And she's like, I, how can she be that way? Like, how can she be so petty? How can she be so upset about something that doesn't mean anything when other people have it so much worse? And the pastor just looks at her and he says, you know, not everybody can handle what you've been through. Some people, all they can handle are dirty socks on the floor. And I try to remember that now as an adult, that everybody experiences things differently. Everybody has different tolerances for different types of things. And while dirty socks on the floor might not mean anything to me, maybe my experiences that I've had to another person might be their dirty socks. They, we need to stop comparing our traumas and our experiences to other people and just focus on, okay, what, what things have I gone through that are really hindering me and causing me pain? And what can I do about those things regardless of anybody else and their experiences? This is a very individual and personal journey. It's not about anybody else's trauma or lack of trauma. It's my journey and this is causing damage to me. So how can I start working on that? I think that's so accurate. And I think that variance is very, very, very true. And I think that is why we see 
that variance of reaction when people go through a similar experience, why one person turns into this inspirational speaker that's making millions of dollars and has a successful, happy family, and this other person can't maintain a job and is in and out of prison even though it was the same experience, because we do all have different tolerances, you know, whether that's on that genetic level or whether that's what we learned growing up or the supports that were there for us, those all differ so greatly. And I think another thing that really differs is the healing. Because we are all different and because we experience trauma differently, everybody's healing journey is very different. And I think especially in this day and age where we want to, you know, franchise everything and have a Walmart version of therapy that really gets lost in the mix. But what works for one person isn't going to work for another. You know, we talked about that with meditation and we've got that meditation book out there where Ivy and I both talk about our experiences with meditation, where I found it was an integral, necessary part of my healing journey and it's helped me so much. And for Ivy, it screwed her up more. So when it comes to healing, you really have to decide what is right for you. I know one of the things that that always drove me nuts, and I was told so frequently by friends and counselors alike, and all the self-help books out there, you've got to be angry. If you don't get angry at your parents for what they've done, you're never going to heal. And I call bullshit on that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I've been mildly upset. I've been somewhat angry, but the kind of bone shattering soul depth anger they want you to have towards your parents, I don't have the capacity for. Part of what my mom did to me was she integrated me into her personality. What she felt, I felt. What she went through, I went through. I am intimately aware of the pain that existed in that woman that destroyed her soul and destroyed her life. And when I have such an intimate understanding of that pain, I find it impossible to be angry with her. But that does not mean that I haven't healed. That doesn't mean that I haven't moved forward. That doesn't mean that I have come through other ways. Because you don't always have to be angry, or you don't always have to be mindful, or you don't always have to go to therapy. Healing is an independent, personal journey. And I I think along with that, you know, the reasons for people starting their healing journey are also different. That looks different for everybody. One of the things that drives me absolutely fucking crazy is when I hear that cliche that like, oh, you have to do it for yourself or it won't be effective. You got to be doing it for you. I don't believe that. I'm sorry, but I don't. I think eventually as you get into your healing journey and you start experiencing some positive reinforcement from it and you start seeing the benefits, yeah, you do start doing it for yourself. And some people do start doing it for themselves for the get-go. When I started on my healing journey, it was 100% for myself because I didn't want to be fucked up. But not everybody is motivated by the same thing. Uh, There's somebody who's very, very important to me. And they honestly have so much self-loathing that they weren't motivated to to heal for their own sake because they didn't feel like they were worth it. They They didn't want to mess with it. They didn't feel like they deserved it. They were basically just kind of waiting around to die. But what did motivate them to get help And to start healing and to start working on themselves was seeing that I loved them and that there were other people that loved them and cared about them. That was their motivation to get started. And yes, once they got started and they started doing that healing, it did start being more for themselves. But initially, they wouldn't have even started on that journey. They wouldn't have even tried 
if they weren't doing it for somebody else. And there are plenty of people out there who may not be motivated to heal for their own sake, but then they have kids and they realize if I don't get help, if I don't start healing from this, I'm going to mess my kids up. And I love my kids and I don't want to do that to them. So their kids are their motivation to get started healing. There is nothing wrong with that. And it is equally effective. I don't care what your reason is for getting started on that healing journey. It doesn't have to be for you initially. I think that is a lie. I think the truth is that getting started on that healing journey, regardless of what your reason is, you just need to be motivated, whether you're motivated for yourself or you're motivated to get started for the benefit of somebody else. I think the end result ends up being the same, but you have to get started. And I think for a lot of us, that reason is a lot more complex than just, oh, I'm healing for myself. And I think it's also not very altruistic because I feel like there's this fairy tale in in the healing and psychology world about, well, you know, I'm healing for my growth and my spiritual enlightenment. And I'm sorry, but most of us, when we start healing, that's not it. It is because we don't want to hurt others or it's because my biggest reason I started healing, I was tired of being in pain. I was in psychological distress for years and I was fucking tired of it. So I had two options. I was going to eat a bullet or I was going to work on myself. I chose to work on myself and it's been a lot harder, but a lot more worth it in all honesty. It was never altruism for me. And there was part of it that was motivated by others because I have always been in some sort of romantic relationship since I was like 15, some sort of long-term romantic relationship. And because I had been fucked up, I was fucking up their lives. My issues were affecting them and I wasn't okay with that. So for me, there was a lot of pieces going on. I was tired of hurting. I was tired of hurting other people. And so I started on a journey needing to change something. And it's okay, whatever your reason is, like Ivy said, as long as you have a reason, as long as you have a motivation and you're moving forward, do it. It's equally effective. And like we said, the same healing journey isn't going to work for everybody. And that's okay too. And it doesn't matter the reasons either, because we're not just saying, oh, the one with meditation and Ivy, that's a great example where that specific tool did not work for her. And so she's not using it anymore. But there are other reasons as well, such as finances. Because of my struggles in my life, I don't think I've ever really honestly been at a point where I could afford to have regular therapy. So yes, therapy may have done wonders for me. I got into a couple a couple sessions of it. It didn't do a lot for me in all honesty. But one of the biggest barriers to seeking that particular healing path is just money. I'm sorry, it doesn't grow on trees and I didn't have the capacity to seek it out. And I get that there were grants and there were all these other things, but that takes energy to track down, which you may not have if you're dealing with mental health struggles. And then if you are neurodivergent like me, whether that be the PTSD has created a lot of neurodivergence or your autism, ADHD, you also have the fact that you may have a lot of difficulty finding a therapist. And that was the other piece that I did not seek therapy for for most of my life because the few times I did reach out to a therapist, they didn't understand me. They kept reading me through a neurotypical person. I'd relate this issue to them and they'd be like, oh, I understand. And they'd go off on this tangent and they'd redirect the therapy session to focus on something that was completely irrelevant to me and my life and my framework because they could not comprehend who I was or where I had been. And they weren't able to step outside of themselves enough to see me. And so if you can't find a good therapist, even if you can't afford one, it may be that you don't have the energy to work through five, six, seven, eight, nine therapists before you find one. I think to some degree, finding a good therapist can just be luck of the draw because I have been through a few different therapists bounced around a little bit. And you do sometimes 
if you can afford to and you're interested in trying therapy, sometimes you have to bounce around a little bit until you find somebody that's good. Like I've tried out a few therapists. I've done a couple sessions with them, had the same problem Autumn did and canceled my future sessions with them and then had to look for somebody else until I found a therapist that worked right for me. But like Autumn said, it's it's different for everybody. You may find that therapy is not what you need, or at least not what you need at this particular time. You may take a completely different route. You may start with different coping skills. You may start with different avenues of healing, and that's perfectly acceptable. The, the point is just to get started on that path and to not expect that the cliches will work for you and not always anticipate that like, oh, well, if therapy wasn't working for me quite right or meditation wasn't working for me quite right, don't look at that as a failure. Look at it as, okay, that's apparently not something that's going to work for me or it's not working for me right now. Let me try something different. I think that's a really important truth that we don't really hear about is that, yeah, there are some of these neatly laid out paths towards healing, but that's not going to work the same way for every person. And you kind of have to try different things until you figure out what's going to work for you. And that's going to evolve over time as you move through your journey. The, the next important truth that I think that we need to look at is that distress and stress are both on a spectrum. That's also something that people experience in very different ways. And I think along with that, we kind of have this expectation that as we're healing and we're working on ourselves, we're going to get to a point where, oh, I'm all better now and I can handle whatever comes my way and not be bothered by it at all. I can handle it with perfect composure and I'll be totally fine because I'll have all these coping skills and I'll be cured I'll be healed completely. And that's not really realistic because regardless of whether you've been through trauma or you haven't been through trauma, everybody experiences stress. Everybody will experience distress over the course of their life. And it's not about getting to a space where it's all better and you're never going to experience stress again. Or if you do experience, you'll be able to handle it perfectly. A lot of it is really about reduction reducing the intensity, it's reducing the frequency, and improving your ability to handle those things. How I've looked at my trauma recovery and also how I have looked at all of my other mental health issues is that I am not attempting to cure myself of anything. These things are now a integral part of who I am. They are wired into me. I am not trying to eradicate any part of myself. What I am trying to do is mitigate damage and manage what's going on with me. It's a lot of reducing the intensity of feeling, it's reducing the frequency, and it is improving how I react to those situations. But I have no expectation that I'm ever going to get to a spot where I just stop being bothered by stress. Everybody feels stress of varying types. It's really how you manage it. It's not trying to get rid of it completely. I think that's a very vital distinction that we are beginning to make more and more, which is the idea of management instead of cure, because a lot of this isn't going to be eradicated. In all honesty, some of the quirks I've ended up with because of my acronyms, my PTSD, my ASD, whatever you want to throw out there, are so much a part of me that I don't want to change them. And so it is finding a way to manage those. And this is a concept that's actually been around for a while. It's very strong in behaviorism. But if you have a behavior that is unacceptable and something you don't want, so we'll use dogs as an example. So you have a dog and they're peeing on the floor or they're barking aggressively. You're not looking at stopping 
the behavior. You're looking at reducing the intensity of the behavior and you're looking at reducing the frequency. And so that is really how I've always looked at my mental health is looking at reducing the intensity and frequency of problematic behaviors or problematic thoughts, whatever is causing the issues. I want to reduce intensity and frequency. And so by that, you want to see less of them happening. So if you tend to have burnout a lot, or if you tend to get triggered a lot, you'd like to see that be triggered less and less. And then if you do get triggered and you become violent and you're breaking dishes, well, then maybe we can reduce that intensity. So one dish gets broke instead of three until we can reduce that. So a dish isn't broke, but you're punching a wall and then you reduce it more and more and more. And you're never really going to get down to zero for the most part, you might have times where you're going to be at zero and things are fine and you're doing great. But like Ivy says, stress comes and stress goes. And I think there's also a big difference between types of stress. And I think not enough people recognize this because stress itself is a variance, not just in, oh, well, this is really stressful to not stressful, but in the this is a different kind of stress than what I can handle versus this is a type of stress I can handle. And a great example of that for me is living off grid. Most people would find my lifestyle extremely stressful. I do not have running water. I do not have endless access to electricity. If anything goes wrong out here, it will take 30 to 40 minutes before police or fire or paramedics are likely going to be able to respond to me. Most people would see this as extremely stressful. I don't see this as stressful at all. I see this as, yes, this is, this is okay. This is a stress I can handle. But going to work, working a 40-hour job for another person, that's not something I can handle. Both of these things are very stressful, but one I can handle and one I can't. And we all have different stresses that we are capable of handling. And I think part of the reason that certain stresses are easier for us or certain stresses are more difficult is because the trauma did change us. It changes the way we perceive things and it changes the way we react to things. And I think that is part of why living off grid is easier for me than working. And this kind of goes into our next point, which is the idea that no emotions are inherently bad and need to be fixed or dealt away with. And so for me personally, a lot of people see me as a pessimist and I do struggle with depression a lot and I have a very negative viewpoint of a lot of things in society. And a lot of people would say, well, you need to fill your life with gratitude and you need to look on the positive side and you need to reduce all this depression and this negative thinking. The reality is I see the world as extremely fucked up. I see the fact that you have to give the majority of your life to some other person for some other cause that has nothing to do with you or what you want to do just to be able to exist in the society as completely faulty, unethical, and immoral. And I am not okay with it. And I am not going to lie to myself and say that I am. And that leaves me being depressed a lot of the time. But it does mean that I can deal with the kind of stress that comes with living off grid because that's my personal choice. And that's something I am familiar with and okay with. But I can't deal with the stress of a job because I feel like no matter who the boss is, they are literally stealing chunks of my life just so that I can exist. And I don't think that's okay. But that is a choice I've made. And I think it's perfectly okay for a lot of us to continue to have these quote unquote negative emotions. Or even on the other end of that, to be 
exuberantly positive sometimes because I feel like there's this big thing like, oh, well, there's these emotions that are acceptable and only within this range. And I believe that is a very, very false idea because no emotion is inherently bad. And if the intensity of that emotion or the emotion itself is not destroying your functioning and is not causing harm to other people, then it's your choice and it's okay and it's a valid way to live and it's a valid way to validate yourself and to validate your experiences and to validate that emotion by allowing yourself to experience it. I know anger has been one of those emotions that that gets qualified uh, and labeled as being bad, but it's been really important for me to experience that anger. I know Autumn was saying that like she hasn't really needed to go through that. Granted, when you're going through therapy, you're going through treatment, that is something that comes up a lot. It's like, okay, you have to you have to feel this anger and work through it and all of that. But there's also this idea that once you do that, then you should get to a spot where you're no longer angry and you can move on and not feel that anger anymore. And I think even outside of the context of treatment and therapy, the rest of society kind of guilt trips you for feeling angry. Anger is a negative, bad emotion that you shouldn't feel and you shouldn't express. And I think society does that because ultimately, anger tends to make the people around you uncomfortable. And I get that. That's fair. I get uncomfortable sometimes when I'm around angry people. But I don't think that makes anger in and of itself a bad emotion. I don't think there are bad emotions. I think you can take things to an extreme and act them out in ways that are very damaging. But I think anger in and of itself can be a really healthy thing to experience. And for me, it was a really necessary thing to experience because for most of my life, I did not feel anger because I couldn't really feel anger. I didn't feel like I was allowed to. And if I did have moments where I felt anger, I immediately started guilt tripping myself. And I immediately started feeling like, oh, I'm making things worse for other people or I'm being a horrible person because I'm angry. Anger was important for me to start experiencing for a variety of reasons. One of them for me is that anger has allowed me to set boundaries that were that are really important. So if you've listened to other episodes of the podcast before, you will know that I do not interact with my father. I do not see my father as a good person. I see him as having done a lot of damage and having no remorse for it whatsoever. Before I allowed myself to start feeling angry about those things, There was a part of me that was like, oh, I should forgive him and let him back into my life. Maybe he'll have changed. And there were a few times when I did let him back into my life and it didn't take very long before I regretted it again. It wasn't until I started allowing myself to be angry at him that I was able to protect myself. Because even though I've changed and I've been healing and I've been working on myself, far as I can tell, he's the same as he's always been. He's not going to change. His behaviors have not changed. And the ways in which he's abusive, those have not changed. It was not until I allowed myself to actually be angry at him that I was able to keep those boundaries in place. That's one one of the most important things for me with being able to experience anger. And also, it's been important for me to experience anger because I needed to stop viewing certain emotions as bad. I needed to see that the entire spectrum of emotion exists for a reason. 
and that we need that entire spectrum of emotion, or at least I did, to really feel the fullness of experience in life because I have spent so much of my life having a very narrow spectrum of emotion and not really letting myself feel anything to the fullest. It's been very overwhelming for me as I've started to really feel emotions deeply, but I needed that so that I could start healing. And anger was the hardest one for me to learn, but it was also the most important for important one for me to accept in myself and to see in myself because I needed to stop seeing myself as a bad person for feeling anger. My anger that I have towards my father is justifiable and I don't need to feel guilty for that. And I don't need to let him back into my life either. And that was something that was very hard for me to, to grasp. And it's been very liberating for me. I am angry. I'm, maybe I'll get over it at some point. Maybe I will move on. Maybe I won't, but I'm not going to try to force myself either way. If I feel anger, I'm just going to let myself feel it and not feel bad about it because anger is not a bad emotion. If I was acting it out, it would be different, but I'm just letting myself experience something that is natural and justifiable and part of my healing process. And I think when it comes to emotions, because a lot of us that have been through trauma have often been through extreme circumstances, many of us come out with extreme emotions. We may cut them off for a while, but once we get back into contact, we do have extreme emotions. And those are extremely valid because you went through extreme situations. And I think instead of the idea of working through those or getting rid of them or transferring them into something happier and more positive, we can choose to use them. So yes, you don't want to allow yourself to be consumed by the anger or consumed by bitterness to the point that you're unable to move forward. But you can use that emotion as well. You know, anger in a way is like gasoline. You can pour it all over yourself, light the match, and it will cause some very serious consequences that are not good for you. Or you could put it into a car and go a really long ways and accomplish something and get somewhere. That's how you can use anger. You don't necessarily want to get rid of it because it has its potential uses. And like Ivy was saying, I think a big part of what I heard from that is she was validating, allowing herself to continue holding that and allowing herself to continue experiencing that is validating that what she felt was damaging to her, which ties back into that idea of being able to identify what trauma is to you. But also, like she said, she's not acting out on other people because yes, you can take that gasoline and burn yourself. You can also take that gasoline and burn somebody else. And that's the big no-no. I am a big believer in personal autonomy. You know, if you decide that you want to wrap yourself up in bitterness and not move forward in your life, I completely 140,000% agree. That is your choice to do whatever you want with your life. But the minute it starts affecting somebody else, that's no longer your choice. That's you pushing your shit off to somebody else. And I think that is something that we really need to hear about more in trauma work is that it is your responsibility to deal with your shit. Is it fair that you got this load of weight put on you by somebody else that you did not ask for? No, no, it is not fair, but it happened. It's there. It's yours now. So you're going to have to do something with it. And I will say, I, I, I probably sound a little angry about this or a little ranty, but this is a personal trigger point for me because my mom did not deal with her shit. 
My mom overtook my entire life. My father also refused to deal with shit. And they destroyed my life because of it. So I am very, very triggered by people that refuse to own up to their responsibility. Like I said, no, it's not fair that this stuff happened to you, but you are now left to deal with the consequences and it is your responsibility to do so. It is your responsibility to take what you can, do what you can, and move forward the best that you can. And this doesn't mean you're going to make it go away and it doesn't mean you're going to be amazing overnight and you're going to cure all your anger issues and everything's going to be perfectly fine and you'll never hurt another person. It doesn't mean that. It just means that you're trying. And that's really all you have to do is keep trying, trying your best to, to take care of your shit and be responsible for your emotions and responsible for your behaviors so that you're not paying that trauma forward. And that is part of what breaking that cycle is about. It's not just generational. This is a cultural thing. I don't have kids, but I have the ability within me because of all the trauma I have held for generations that has been funneled down into me to push that onto others, to push that down to my boyfriend or my coworkers or even the cashier at the grocery store. And I choose not to. I am breaking that cycle. I am saying, you know what? This was not okay that it happened to me. It was not fair that it happened to me. And I am not going to do this to somebody else. I am not going to push this forward. It stops here. And I do think we all have the responsibility to attempt to stop that flood of trauma from moving through us and flooding into somebody else. And that is not easy, but it is part of what we have to do. I would agree with that. I am very much about personal autonomy and personal accountability. One of the lessons that I learned along these lines when I was younger that was kind of hard for me to swallow, but has been very important, is that, yes, it sucks so bad to go through these traumatic things, and it is unfair, and you didn't deserve it. But that doesn't mean that the world owes you something just because you went through a trauma. And that was really hard for me to accept when I was younger, because in my mind, it's like, yeah, but I've been through all of these horrible things and things should get better now. I should have it better now. The world should take it easy on me because I experienced these things. And the fact is, that's just not how things are. And that's not always a reasonable expectation to have. I am not entitled to special treatment because I've been through something traumatic. And I know earlier I said, you know, not not comparing ourselves to other people and labeling our trauma as better or worse or more or less severe than other people. But I think even though it's, it's best not to do that kind of comparison, I think it's also important to remember that most people have gone through trauma of some kind. We are not individually entitled to anything. The world doesn't owe us anything just because we went through through those traumas. We don't get special treatment because we've been through some things. Because the truth is, most people have been through some things. And we have to take responsibility for ourselves. It's not fair that those things happened. And sometimes the world is not fair and sometimes the world is harsh. But that's it's also a pragmatic reality is that we don't get special treatment just because we went through a trauma. And we're not entitled to anything because of it. And other people don't owe us anything for it. I mean, even though you know, I, I am really angry at my father, like at this point in my life, yeah, the things that he did to our family were completely unacceptable. The things that he did to me were completely unacceptable. 
But what I do with my life now is my responsibility. I have to hold myself accountable for that now. At this point, he doesn't owe me anything either. Like this is now my life. And I'm, I don't think it's fair to, to expect the world to give a special, special treatment or have these expectations that we're entitled to anything because of it. Everybody's experienced trauma. We're all just trying to do the best that we can, but we are responsible for ourselves moving forward. It sucks to have been victimized. It sucks to have been through you know, trauma, but at some point you have to take responsibility yourself for what you do with your life moving forward. And that's that's a hard truth to learn, but it's one that's that's really important, I think. I think it's an extremely hard truth to learn, and I think it is yet another unfair truth to learn because it would be nice if life were fair. It would be nice if I was compensated for the pain that I went through, that people were able to recognize that because of the trauma I experienced and how it interacted with my system, that I am not capable of doing certain tasks. And that is not, unfortunately, how society works. And there are changes being made. And maybe eventually someday we will have a more fair system, but it's not fair now. And and I think that is one of the hardest truths of all of that is being able to accept that none of this is fair. It wasn't fair that it happened. It wasn't fair that you were now left to deal with the consequences. It's not fair that people are not giving you the slack you need to deal with those consequences. But here we are. And again, it it comes down to that choice. Are you going to allow that trauma to move forward and allow that bitterness over the unfairness to consume you and continue what is a cultural story of trauma? Because a lot of our trauma, it, it does tie into culture and how our culture is set up. Are you going to continue writing that story of trauma or are you going to choose to write a different one? On that note, when it comes to it is your responsibility to deal with your shit. I think it's also very important for us to realize that it is not your responsibility to deal with other people's shit. I'm not saying to not have relationships or not interact or not support each other, but there is a difference between supporting someone and taking responsibility for their behaviors or their emotions. And this is something that's that's near and dear to my heart because... I do feel responsible for other people's behaviors and I do feel responsible for other people's emotions. And I actually recently come across something on Facebook. It was posted by a guy named um, Nate Pulselthwaite. I think that's how you pronounce it. And he's a trauma advocate. And he said, you know, stop taking it so personal. And that was in quotes. And his reply was, it's, it's hard not to when you've spent your life being taught you were responsible for other people's feelings, emotions, and well-being while not having the proper support to establish a sense of self. It wouldn't feel so personal if it wasn't so costly. And that is so accurate to me and that rings so true because of the way I was raised, I was responsible for my mother's emotions. I was responsible for my mother's behavior. I was responsible for placating my father. I was responsible for the entire household. And if somebody had an emotional reaction, I could not trust them to manage it on their own. And so in order to be safe and to keep Ivy safe and to keep others safe, 
I had to step in and assume responsibility for their issues and their emotions and their reactions and their behaviors. And that became part of who I was to this day. I am 40 years old. I have been out of that household since I was 18. And every single day, even literally today, I ran into this issue with my boyfriend where he is going through a difficult experience and is upset. And I felt responsible for that. I felt like I needed to assume responsibility for his reaction and his ability to deal with it. And I struggle with this constantly because it's not my responsibility. Can I be there and validate him? Yes. Can I be there and support him in doing the work he needs to do to process and grow from this? Yes. Can I be responsible for it? No, it's not even possible for me to take the responsibility on the level that needs to be taken in order to deal with that. I think it is really hard sometimes to remember that it's not our responsibility to deal with other people's shit or or their behaviors or their emotions. I haven't struggled so much with that with people in my day-to-day life, my current relationships, but where I have really struggled with it is when it comes to generational trauma. And this one's pretty a pretty sensitive spot for me still because it's something I've really been actively working on in therapy because for so long I felt like the entire weight of breaking the cycle of trauma in my family was on my shoulders. I felt that because my father did so much damage, not just to us, but to other people as well, I felt like it was my responsibility to make up for the damage that he had done. I had to fix that somehow by making a a really important positive impact on the world to counteract the damage that he had done to other people and to us. And I also felt like somehow it was my responsibility to make up for all of the damage and hurt that the women in my family have experienced. My mom, my grandmothers, my sister, there's been so much pain in the women in my family. We've experienced so much and I felt that that heaviness on me for such a long time that somehow I had to live to the absolute fullest and be the absolute best, most perfect person that I could be to make up for all of the damage, to make up for all of the pain, the entire weight of breaking the cycle of trauma and pain and hurt and resentment and anger, all of that was on my shoulders. I held myself to such a impossible expectation of perfection for so long that I did not see any value in myself at all. I hated myself so much because I wasn't doing enough to break the cycle. I wasn't making up for enough of the damage that had been done. I was not enough. I was not doing enough. And it's only been through therapy over the last couple of years that I've been able to start letting that go and recognize that the damage that was done to my mom, to my grandmothers, to my sister, to my aunts, all of that is not my responsibility. I can't fix it. I can't go back and stop those traumas from happening to them. I can't go back and make my mom's life better. I can't take away her pain. I can't do those things. And it's not my responsibility to. And I cannot make up for the damage that my father has done in this world. I can't do that. And it's not my responsibility to. And it wasn't until I was able to let go of that burden that I could actually start seeing value in myself and actually start living for myself and for my current relationships 
it wasn't until I let go of that weight that I could stop living in the past and actually start living my life in the present and enjoying it. So I think there's something incredibly liberating in being able to acknowledge that you are not responsible for other people's shit. You are not responsible for the weight of the, the generational trauma. All you can do and all that it's your responsibility to do is to do better going forward. Breaking the cycle does start with you, but that you're not breaking the cycle for everybody else. You're breaking the cycle moving forward. That's it. You're only responsible for you. You're not responsible for generations going past. You just choose not to make excuses for the generational trauma. You don't condone the damage that was done. You don't try to fix what's already been done. You just go forward better. You just start making improvements moving forward and don't repeat the same patterns. That's all you're responsible for. And that's a very liberating thing. And I think it's something that is very, very difficult for those of us that have gone through generational trauma because I had my own experiences with that and feeling like the weight was on me and I was responsible for all of this healing. And it's not only, you know, that you're not, it's that you can't. It's not possible to cure the trauma of my great grandmother. It's not literally possible. All I can do is, like Ivy said, move forward, not repeat it. Don't let that trauma come through me into the world. And that is something I can do. I can live my best life. I can constantly be trying to improve and become a better person. And I can choose to not pay that trauma forward. And I think another truth that's a really, really hard one for many of us and one that I don't really like the idea of because I like checklists and I like checking things off. The idea that not all wounds will heal because I do believe there's this idea if I can just cure this core wound and that core wound and I can fix this and I can fix that, then everything will be all better. But not all wounds heal. Some of them you will have with you forever. And part of that is because trauma for some of us becomes an integral part of who we are, that that wound is just part of us. My absolute biggest core wound is safety. I am constantly obsessed with safety. My entire life, my entire way of thinking, my relationships, my behaviors, all of them are based on establishing primal safety, eliminating threats from the environment to ensure my survival. And yeah, you could say that is a genetic push, and it is for many of us, but I am obsessed with it, absolutely obsessed. And I have worked on that for many years, and maybe someday I will learn to overcome that, but I don't think I will. I think that is a wound that I will have for the rest of my life. And that's how it is. Sometimes we have wounds and we'd like them to heal, but they just don't. We may be able to keep them from growing bigger and getting infested with gangrene and larvae and gross things, but we can't always necessarily stitch them closed. I think another one of those wounds that's very difficult, if not impossible, to heal for a lot of people, myself included, is, is sexual trauma. There's, there's something so deep and visceral and on some level primal about sexual trauma that really impacts you in a large variety of ways and it impacts you in ways that are very difficult to tackle. I, I am not super comfortable talking about my, my sexual trauma and death because it's something I am working on right now, but it is the hardest one 
for me. It, one of the deepest layers of, of my trauma and it's one of the most difficult ones for me to, to heal from. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I, I think part of the reason for that is that there is, especially in Western culture, a lot of shame around sex. Sex is a very taboo thing in general even healthy versions of sex. It's one of those things that most people don't want to talk about. You know, polite society doesn't discuss those things. So when you have sexual trauma, that adds a whole nother layer of shame and taboo around that topic. So it can be hard to even confront sexual trauma. And then it can be additionally really challenging to heal from sexual trauma because sometimes the way that your brain tries to cope with sexual trauma is to normalize the trauma and abuse that you experienced or to help you feel like you have some control over it by thinking, oh, but I wanted that. I must have wanted that or been seeking that out somehow. And I think a perfect example of that is that there have been studies showing that victims of sexual assault, especially child victims of sexual assault, as they grow older, a lot of them develop fantasies around rape or incest, or they develop interest in sexual fetishes like BDSM. Not that BDSM is always an unhealthy thing, but people who experience sexual trauma, especially at a young age, do tend as they get older to be drawn to those fetishes in more extreme ways. And I've had some of those experiences myself with sexual fantasies that I was very uncomfortable with but that I still had and that I felt a lot of shame around until I got to a point where I, I could understand that I was having those things because my brain was trying to protect itself. I was trying to protect myself by taking this trauma and abuse that happened to me and trying to make it something positive. It did it in kind of a, a warped way. And that's something that I've been tackling now for a while, trying to work through that and develop healthier ideas of sex and trying to heal from that trauma and get to a space where I can feel healthy sexual intimacy. But man, that's been a rough one to work through. And I think that that, that is a really difficult one for a lot of people. And for some people, that sexual trauma may never completely heal. I don't know if I'll ever completely heal from it. It's such a core wound. I've been working on it for such a long time. It's still so hard for me to even get close to. Even in my therapy sessions, I, I can't even work on that for an entire session. We can only work on it for you know, 15, 20 minutes here or there because I get so overwhelmed and I have to pull back from it. I don't know if that wound will ever heal. And I think there's a lot of people out there who experience that and nobody talks about it because one, we want to believe that all wounds will heal, but also we don't talk about it because sex is such a taboo and there is a lot of shame around it, especially when you start developing fantasies and fetishes around the trauma that you experienced, around the abuse that you experienced. You feel ashamed of it when it's really just your brain trying to protect you from what you experienced. But that's hard to confront and that's really, really hard to heal. And I think that goes right into another truth is that you don't have to heal everything. There is this misconception that in order to really function or to be better or to cure yourself or however you want to term it, you need to you fix everything, to heal everything. And that is not accurate. So in the case of 
the the fetishes or the fantasies that you feel uncomfortable with. Like Ivy said, it was her brain's attempt to protect itself. And basically what you're doing is you're taking that wound and you're saying, this isn't healed now. Maybe it will be someday. I don't know. But in order to continue to function, I'm going to accommodate the wound in this way. I'm going to create protection around my psyche by doing this. And we can do that with so many of our symptoms and so many of our behaviors and so many of our wounds, whether they're core or superficial, we do not have to heal everything. Now, ideally, the more you heal, the more you grow. Yes. But like we've said many times, this is not an ideal world. And so you only have so much you can do. You only have so many resources to work with. And sometimes you are very aware that starting the healing process on X is going to open a Pandora's box of shit and you just do not have the capacity to deal with that at this time. And that is perfectly acceptable. Sometimes you have to push your energy into learning to accommodate those wounds that you can't heal or are not yet ready to heal. It's okay if you're not constantly working on everything. It's okay if you reshift your focus to learning to function around instead of curing something. It's perfectly acceptable. Along those lines as well, even when you do choose to start that healing process, you decide to tackle something, you still have to choose your healing investments wisely because let's be honest, we only have so many resources. And when you start on that healing journey, sometimes there can be that desire to just fix everything now. And I was like that a lot when I was younger. When I started therapy for the first time when I was 15, it was just like, no, I'm going to fix this all right now. Let's just tackle everything at once. And it did not take me long before I realized that was not possible. It was too much. It was too overwhelming. I could not take all of that on. I had to break it down into smaller pieces. I had to work on it progressively. And I worked on it from those more superficial issues down into core wounds. And it's taken years and years and years for me to get to a spot where I could even address those core wounds because when I was 15, I was not capable of even comprehending them. You have to choose your investments wisely when it comes to your your healing journey. You only have so many resources. You only have so much comprehension. You only have so much understanding. You have to start somewhere and you can't expect yourself to fix everything overnight or even just over a short period of time. Because when we're talking about trauma, especially if you have a complex trauma history, it is a lengthy process. And that is that's another one of those truths. I, I don't know that it's a lesser known truth. I think a lot of people know that it is a lengthy process to work through trauma, but it is a truth that it takes a long time and you can't expect perfection. You can't expect yourself to, to figure it out overnight. Uh, you have to work within your capacities and your understanding. We actually did a two-part series on, on reduced functioning that ties in really well with that. So if you're interested in more detail on that, you can go back and listen to those, those two episodes that we did. Because when you're in this journey and you're working towards getting healthier and happier, it takes time and you kind of have to take it in bite-sized chunks. You have to do it a little bit, a bit at a time and you have to choose those priorities wisely and only do what you can handle and not beat yourself up for not getting it all done right now. And I think that ties directly into another truth, which is that we all have limits. We, we like to believe that there is no limitation and it's all in your mind and you can do whatever you put your mind to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that is not true. We have honest to God, physiological, psychological limitations that we encounter 
that we cannot move past or sometimes limitations that we will not move past. And I actually wrote an entire blog on this, the I can't attitude, if you want to look in more to the idea of things we can't do and what that really honestly means. But sometimes you can't. A good one for me is working overtime. I have tried to work overtime, but if I have to work extra hours for another person, I will get suicidal. I've realized I cannot do that. And so I don't. So sometimes you just can't do things and that's okay. Okay. And the idea that we can do whatever we put our mind to and that we are limitless, I think is a very damaging concept because it puts all of that responsibility back on you. I think sometimes too, and this has been particularly relevant for me, is that it is possible that there there are these things that you can do. But that doesn't mean you have to, doesn't mean that you want to, doesn't mean that you will. I felt powerless and helpless for most of my childhood. And so as I got older, I got into my head. It's like, okay, I can do anything. And I would push myself and push myself and push myself to do all these things. And I proved to myself that, yes, I can do that. And then over time, I realized I've done all of these things because I could without thinking about whether or not it was even fucking worth it to do. So now as I've gotten older, one of the most wonderful parts of being in my 30s is recognizing that, yes, I could do that, but I'm not going to because I don't want to or it's not important enough to me or the costs outweigh the benefits. And that has played out in a lot of different ways in my life, career especially. I don't work for somebody else. I work for myself now. Could I work for somebody else again? Yeah, I could, but I don't want to. So I'm going to do everything in my power not to. I could have gone to school and become a doctor. But to me, the costs outweighed the benefits, both in terms of money and time and energy. Those are are things that I could have done, but I choose not to. Even in my day-to-day life, I used to overload myself with tasks that needed to get done and then beat myself up if I didn't get them done. Sometimes I would stay up all night making sure that things got done. And now I'm at a space where I think I could do all of those things today. All of it. I'd have to stay up all night, but I could do it. And a younger version of me would have. The 34-year-old version of me looks at that and says, well, fuck that. That's not that important. There's a lot of things there that actually don't matter that much. That has been one of my favorite parts of getting older and being in this part of my my healing journey is recognizing that, yes, I am fully capable of a lot of things. Doesn't mean I have to do them all. So I, I think that's also one of those truths that n- not enough people talk about that I think is really important to learn is that just because you can doesn't mean you have to, doesn't mean you should, doesn't mean you will. We can have limits and we do have limits and that's completely acceptable to have limits because a lot of times limits are very close to boundaries and we all know how necessary boundaries are. For me, one of the biggest things that does not get talked about enough in mental health is that it's not just you. Because when you get into therapy and when you get into mental health and you get into self-help, so much is focused on you and how you are abnormal and how you are not typical and how you can fix yourself and how you can adjust your behaviors and how you can. Well, you know what? It's not just you. The world is also fucked up. And I know this is a controversial idea, especially 
for some people, though it astounds me that this is controversial because to me, this is just a reality. The world is ableist. The world is racist. The world is so many ists. There are so many of us out there that if you find yourself loving the wrong person, being the wrong skin color, having a disability that's not easily understandable or hell, having any disability at all, you are going to have a much harder time of it because the world, one, is not set up for you, and two, it's going to actively make everything more difficult for you for whatever reason, whether that's intentional, whether it's subconscious, whatever. I'm not going to get into the theories and the politics behind that, but it is a reality. And I think that's something that needs to be acknowledged on any healing journey, whether it's trauma or whether you're managing something like bipolar or schizophrenia or dealing with autism or ADHD, whatever your mental health struggle is, the world plays a part as well and the culture plays a part as well. And our culture is not healthy. Our culture is actively sick. Our culture actively perpetuates trauma on a regular basis. When the healing journey is so focused only on you, I think that puts way too much responsibility on your shoulders, saying, well, obviously this is all your fault. Yes, it is your responsibility to manage your shit and deal with it the best you can, but the world is going to cause issues and the world is not the healthiest place otherwise. Taking that into account, not just for the ability to validate yourself a little bit and say, hey, you know what? I'm not the only one fucked up in this situation. And by the way, you're playing a part in me being fucked up. But I think also just acknowledging those factors around you that are important to changing because we, we think so much with our heads and the psychology and changing our thoughts. And that's great. And all of that helps. But there are other things that matter, you know, getting somewhere where you feel accepted in an environment, uh, having a house or a space that you can live in that meets your sensory demands. Diet is another huge one. There are so many other environmental factors the impact our journey, some of them are out of control, some of them are in our control, but you've got to recognize those environmental bits because those are an equally valid and important part of your healing journey. I would actually like to share an example of one of those environmental factors that I did not realize was so important to me until very recently. For most of my adult life, I have lived in one-bedroom apartments or studio apartments, really small spaces, and I always just thought of that more as a matter of, you know, financially, that's what I could afford. But over the last year, uh, I've been doing some house-sitting for some friends and some clients of mine and for my, my partner's parents, and they all live in very large houses. And... What I realized while I've been house sitting for them is that I never want to live in a big house. I do not feel safe in a big house. Part of my trauma that I've experienced makes me feel very unsafe in this world in general. And I don't like being in big houses because I can't see everything that's going on. In my apartment, I can see everything from pretty much any angle. I know where all of the, the exits are and, and entrances are. I know where everything is. I can see everything. That makes me feel safer. But in a giant house with five bedrooms, somebody could have snuck into the house and be hiding out in one of those bedrooms for hours without me even knowing, and they could kill me in the middle of the night. Is that paranoid thinking? Maybe, but that is also those are also things that do happen 
Like those things have happened throughout history. People have been murdered like that in their own houses by people who were hanging out and then hidden away somewhere and they didn't even know. So yeah, it's a little bit paranoid, but there is also some realism there. But regardless, the reason why I even have those fears is because of the trauma that I have experienced, not just my childhood trauma, but a trauma that I experienced as an adult, trauma that I've experienced being a woman in a, in a world that is not safe for women. It has made me recognize how important it is to me to live in a space that is small enough that I can fucking see everything. I never wanna live in a big house. I didn't know that that would be something triggering for me until recently. And you know, honestly, I don't even wanna heal that. I don't, I don't care. I would rather feel safe. That's not something I even wanna tackle. I, and that's, that is an environmental factor that matters to me a hell of a lot more than I ever realized it did. And that was a huge wake up call to me that there are still ways, even after 34 years of getting to know myself really well, there are still ways in which trauma affects me that I didn't even know were problems for me. And the environment really does matter. And there are a lot of changes you can make externally as well as internally. And I think that is a point that we really need to be more aware of in the healing journey and in trauma work. It's not all just about you. You've also got to take in the bigger picture. And in taking in that bigger picture, I think confronting what is a hard truth, not everyone cares about what you went through. That is just a really harsh reality, but it is one that we need to acknowledge. And I think it ties back into that idea of fairness and feeling like people should give you some entitlement or give you some slack and they don't. And that is, again, the world's a fucked up place and it's not fair and it's not intended to be healthy and it's not intended to promote your growth. And so there are a lot of people out there that just don't care about what you went through or what your issues were. Some people are assholes. Some people have too much on their plate. Some people just don't know you. And so they're just not invested in you. And that's okay that not everybody cares about you or what you went through. That's okay. But it is a reality we need to accept because I think when we don't, we encounter those situations where people aren't giving us the courtesies we need. They aren't giving us the sympathies we need. And we feel personally hurt by that, which is a valid response, but it's really not so much about us. It's about them. Some of those people who don't care about us or about what we've gone through are people who have experienced trauma themselves and their way of dealing with the trauma is to either ignore or invalidate the trauma that they themselves have experienced and then therefore also ignore and invalidate other people's trauma or their way of dealing with trauma is that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and that's what they've always done they've just toughed it out and so they expect everybody else to do the same thing so it's not always even that people are just being assholes. Sometimes they are responding that way because that is their trauma response that they understand is that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you tough it out, you just deal with it, or you don't even acknowledge that you've been through a trauma, you just move on. That is how some people deal with their own trauma. And again, it's not fair, but it is. it goes back to everybody experiencing trauma differently, everybody responding to trauma differently. Not everybody is going to care about what you've been through because not everybody even cares about what they themselves went through. You really shouldn't take it personally because like Autumn was saying, it's like, it's not, a lot of times it's not about you. It's about them. 
And again, that's not necessarily a fair truth, but it is a real truth. And I think it's one that's important for us to accept so that we have better capability of dealing with it when we encounter it. And we aren't etching that into our soul as a personal assault against us. And I think this ties into some of our relationships since we're talking on that. Another truth we don't talk about a lot is that not all relationships are fixable. And I feel that this is a truth that really, really, really needs to be more evident to a lot of people. Having worked in mental health with children, there is such this idea on family first and always repairing the family. And the family is the most important. And I have seen how that damages so many children. Yes, that child wants to go back with mom and dad, but yes, that child will be raped again. Yes, that child will not be eating again. They want to go back because it's familiar. It doesn't mean it's safe. It doesn't mean it's healthy. It doesn't mean it's love. And not all relationships are fixable, whether that's family or whether that's friends or whether that's even acquaintances or coworkers. Some relationships you can't fix. And you need to cut them and you need to move on from them. And that's a completely acceptable response. It's a completely healthy one. And in the end, it's going to be a lot healthier and happier for everybody involved. A lot of times the reason why not all relationships are fixable is that even though you may be really dedicated to yourself and your own healing journey, you may be dedicated to making that relationship work and developing good good uh, relationship skills and communication skills and coping skills, that does not mean the other person will be. And no matter how good you get at those things, the other person could just choose not to care. They could decide that they don't want to heal themselves. They could decide that they don't want to learn how to communicate. There are a lot of factors that play in there, but a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times, some relationships are not fixable because you're the only person trying. And you may desperately want that other person to try, but they're not going to. For me, that was one of those hard lessons that I learned in my relationship with my father, because when I was younger, I did want to mend that relationship because at one point I did feel close to him. I didn't realize that it was an unhealthy closeness at that time, but I did feel really close to my father and I missed my relationship that I had with him and I wanted it back. I wanted us to be able to talk. I wanted there to be like this heartwarming moment where there was admission of things that had gone wrong and apologies and forgiveness and all of that. And I had to get to a point where I recognized that was never going to happen because it didn't matter how much work I did. My father was not going to do that work. He was not going to be involved in that process my dynamic with him would stay stuck because he was stuck. And I also had to get to a point where I accepted that I was never going to get closure. I had to find that in myself. I was never going to get that from him. And sometimes some relationships, it's not because both people aren't willing to work at it. And this is, I think, in some ways, an even harder reality to accept is that sometimes both people do work at it, but either so much damage has been done that it can't be undone or that when you're both healing and growing, you drift apart, you go in different directions or one person heals at a much faster rate than the other person. And it just stops working sometimes that I think in some ways is even harder to accept because it's like, but we're both trying. How is this not working? Sometimes that's just the way that 
that life is. Some relationships are just not salvageable. And it doesn't mean that they didn't have value at one point. It just means that they can't continue on, or at least they can't continue on right now. And that that's okay. And that we don't need to perceive that as a failure on our part or necessarily on their part. If they were also trying, it's just sometimes relationships don't work out. And sometimes you can stay in something for too long and it actually ends up doing more damage than if you just cut ties and go your own separate ways. When we talk about that in our conversations, that makes me think of the song, um, Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough by Don Henley and Patti Smith. And that is a reality. We want to think that love is enough and that is all and it will fix everything, but it's not. Sometimes, like Ivy said, it's because the love is only coming from your side. And sometimes it's because love really isn't all there is to a relationship. There's a lot of other factors that go into it. And that is a really hard truth to accept. And I think part of the reason it is, is because a lot of people that have gone through trauma, especially if that happened as a child, have really fucked up expectations about relationships and hopes for relationships. So even once you've done healing and you've come to realize, okay, what I thought was love was not love, or what I thought was an acceptable, healthy relationship really isn't. A lot of us then reach out into society and we think, okay, well then what is a healthy relationship? Because I don't know what it is. And then we're confronted with societal stories about relationships. And oftentimes these aren't any more honest than what we had to begin with. They may be a little less damaging in some ways, but sometimes not so much. So we get these faulty ideas in our heads about relationships and about what a relationship should look like. Even once we get away from the damage that was done to us, we now still have these complete fairy tales about what a good relationship is. And I think we need to confront those and let some of these preconceived notions about what a relationship is go so that you can move forward and heal. I think one of those those faulty expectations that a lot of people end up with, and I don't think this is just people who have been through trauma. I think this is something that we are we are kind of spoon fed this from a very young age, at least in Western culture, is that someday you'll find that person and they will complete you. They will fill the void. They will heal everything that was once wrong with you. And I think that is a very, very false hope and a very damaging one as well for, for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons being that that's a hell of a lot of pressure to put on somebody to expect them to be your cure-all for everything that's gone wrong in your life. I, I think another reason why that's really damaging as well is because you are essentially by, by holding that belief close, you are putting your life on hold thinking, oh, I just need the right person to love me enough. And then all of this will go away. Everything will be healed. I won't feel this pain anymore. I won't feel abandoned anymore. I won't feel rejected anymore. I won't feel unworthy anymore. The, the pain of abuse or trauma that I experienced will go away once somebody loves me enough, once I find that person that fills this hole inside of me and makes me worthy. That's a really flawed expectation. It's a really damaging one. It's a really hurtful one. And it's one that puts our lives on hold on the basis of a lie, because that's not true. You can find people who do improve your life, who help you heal. I, my, my relationship with my current partner, like Calvin and I have been amazing for each other. We have been helping each other heal. We have 
been developing intimacy with each other on a lot of different levels that we've never experienced with another person. My, my life is better with him, but I don't have the expectation that him loving me will fix everything. And I think there's this false expectation that we're given culturally from a very young age and those Disney movies or romantic comedies and, and a lot of overly dramatic TV shows where we're just like, but, but you're my whole world and I would die without you. I can't live without you. Like we see so much of that from such a young age in, in Western society that, that I think we get these false ideas about what love actually is and what commitment really is and partnership is it it just doesn't it doesn't work that way we're still responsible for ourselves you find somebody that helps your life feel more full but you don't find somebody that fills the void and heals everything that's wrong with you it doesn't work that way and i think those expectations run the other end too because especially in u.s culture there's the idea that you need to be independent and that depending on somebody else or depending on a community somehow makes you less functional. And I think that's false as well. So I, I really feel you end up with one end of the spectrum or the other end of the spectrum, but you don't get that balance in the middle. Because yes, the other person isn't going to complete you and fix you and be your white knight and rescue you and make everything better. But at the same end, that doesn't mean you need to be completely independent of functioning. It is perfectly acceptable to be interdependent with somebody, to rely on somebody else for functioning to some degree. You know, my current relationship is a great example. We talk quite frequently about how we are very different people and we have very different strengths and very different weaknesses, but they complement one another. And so when I step back and I allow my partner to do what he is good at doing and what I struggle to do, I'm not increasing my ability or my skill to do what I struggle with, but I now have resources to do something else that I'm good at and to help him out and to help myself out while he takes the weight of that particular responsibility. And that goes back to me, whatever he has these weaknesses, I step up with my strength and I'm able to balance this out. And that is an interdependent functioning. And sometimes that works within just a partnership. And sometimes that's a larger community where you're all relying on each other because we don't each have to do everything perfectly. It's okay to be good at some stuff and to suck at others. And it's okay to allow other people to help balance out your weaknesses while you balance out theirs. I think that the end of the spectrum, that black or white ideology about relationships really screws us up on our healing journey. That's an issue with society at large. There is a lot of black and white. There's a lot of wildly swinging from one end of a spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. And we get a lot of mixed messages and I think part of the issue with what you're talking about is to some degree mislabeling because society is almost getting to a point where any reliance on another person gets labeled as a codependent type of dynamic. And there's a huge difference between codependency and interdependency. Codependency would suggest that one person is reaping all of the benefits and not giving anything in return. Whereas interdependency, you are looking at everybody's strengths and you're deciding what person is best in this role or to do this thing. And everybody's contributing in the way that they are capable and they know how. And there's a huge difference between those two concepts, but it's almost in that in that wild swing of the pendulum to 
you know, one end of the, the spectrum, this push that we're seeing now for everything to be about independence and you have to be completely self-reliant all the time. I think that is really damaging. And I think it's because it's at least in part a, a mislabeling of what interdependency is and having these false expectations that we are in fact our own islands. And it's something that I have struggled with because I see myself as a very independent person and it's hard for me to let go of the reins sometimes, but it's also important for me to do that. And I'm experiencing that in my relationship, much like Autumn experiences it in hers, where there are a lot of things that could I do it or get it taken care of? Absolutely. But it would take a lot more effort for me to do it than it would for Calvin to do it. And Calvin enjoys those things. He's good at those things. So I let him do that and I contribute in my own way. Interdependency is a very healthy thing. And I don't think that we talk about that enough. It's valuable to have people, whether that's just your partner or a larger community that you can rely on and work with. And that's the basis of some really healthy and good relationships. I agree. I, I think it is a really well-known truth within the, the trauma healing journey and the trauma healing community that a lot of times the relationship ideologies or the, the relationship paradigms we come out with are fucked up, but I don't think it's spoken of enough that the ones that society tries to replace them with are equally as fucked up and can be equally as damaging. And that you really do have to work to create a relationship that is right for you and right for your partner or right for your community. I think another truth that we don't talk about enough within mental health at all is that healthy coping skills aren't always as effective and aren't always applicable in certain situations. A, a really good example of this for me is self-harm. And I know this is not going to be in agreements with a lot of the mental health community. There is nothing better than self-harm to calm me when I am escalated. Do I use it on a regular basis? No, I will try to use every single coping skill I have along the way to avoid that because it is disastrous and it does have significant consequences, yes. And I have also arranged my life so that I very minimally get to the point I am escalated enough that I need to self-harm. But once I get to a certain point of escalation, I have yet to find anything that can call me as effectively as self-harming. And I have learned how to do that in a way that mitigates the damage that ensures I don't break my fist because I'm a hitter. I hit in order to feel pain, whether that's hitting myself in the skull or punching a brick wall. I've learned to hit in a way that I do not damage anything, that I do not break anything. I've learned to do it effectively. I've learned to do it in a peaceable place where I'm not going to be considered violent or a threat to other people. But it's a coping skill I have to use. And is it a healthy one? No, not by any means. Does it have a lot of horrible negative consequences? Yes. Would it be perfect in an ideal world if I eradicated it? Yes. Is there any other helping, healthy coping skill that I can replace it with? No, because they're just not as effective once I'm at that point of escalation, which is why on the healing journey, you learn so much to reduce the escalation before it happens so you don't get to the point that you need those. But I don't think we talk enough about the fact that sometimes when you are in an extreme crisis situation, you need extreme crisis coping skills. 
and no, it's not healthy and no, it's not pretty. But sometimes you have to do what you have to do to keep moving forward. I see that also in you know, less extreme ways. Right? I, I see that in how healthy coping, healthy coping skills are not always applicable in reality, especially when you're dealing with other people. So in my life, I have done a, a lot of research and work when it comes to communication skills. But my partner has not done that kind of research. And I don't foresee him really being interested in doing it um, the way that I have. I, I have a very textbook understanding of how things go in communication and conflict resolution and coming to agreements and compromises because I, I've read it in so many books and I've learned it in therapy. And for me, it's very uh, structured and there are certain ways that you do things and there are certain ways that you say things. And I can't always use that with Calvin because Calvin operates differently. Calvin learns as he goes. He's not a big a, a textbook guy, at least not with stuff like that. Uh, communication is something that he does tend to struggle with. He learns over time, but I can't follow the textbook rules with communication and conflict resolution with him because it doesn't work. Sometimes you have to get creative and you have to color outside the lines because sometimes what you learn in the books or you learn in therapy is not relevant and applicable to everyday life because in everyday life, you are dealing with other people who have not learned those skills and maybe they don't want to learn those skills or they're not equipped to or they don't want to learn them in the same ways that you have. And so you still have to be able to find alternate ways to do things. And sometimes our, our communication is much slower than I would like and it's in fits and spurts and it takes time and I have to get creative about how I communicate with him. It's not textbook. And sometimes it's not the utmost healthiest way to do things, but it's what works for our dynamic and it's what works for him. I've had to learn to work around it because I can't, I can't expect other people to always have the same skill set that I have developed and I can't expect other people to have the same interest in developing all of those skill sets. I do expect that over time, our communication will improve and it has, and we're both learning. That I do have an expectation of because we're in an, in an intimate relationship as partners. And so at some point we have to find a way to communicate with each other and we are, but I don't expect him to do everything by the book the way that I would if I were in a relationship with myself. <laughs> So I, I think we also have to look at that too, is that we can develop all of these, these healthy coping skills, but that doesn't always mean that life is going to go by the book. And that's not just in our intimate relationships, that's also in work environments. There's lots of work environments that I've been in where I've thought, oh, this could be handled so much better if they just knew how to actually set up a good structure for communication in this meeting to talk about this fucking issue. But no, nobody's doing that. Okay, you have to find workarounds. Now, none of that is to say that you should not learn a crap ton of healthy coping skills because if you're on a healing journey from trauma or you're on a management or healing journey with any mental health struggle, those coping skills are going to help a lot. You're going to learn all sorts of tools that's going to allow you to be way more versatile and allow you to color outside the lines because you even have lines to begin with. It is just to say, though, that 
you can't always expect to use those in the exact same way that you were taught within that therapy session or within that self-help book. And it's also to say that sometimes if all you started out with was a hammer, sometimes there are situations in which you need a hammer. And all of that's okay, that spectrum. So yeah, you definitely need to learn those coping skills because they are going to be effective and help, but they're always not the pat solution that we're provided with them. They're not always the ideal end-all, be-all solution that the mental health community and the self-help marketing community really wants us to to believe they are. All right. So while we're talking about uh, developing healthy coping skills and stuff, let's let's kind of Go the uh, go the other direction here and talk about how insanity is also part of the trauma healing journey. We feel insane a lot, and we deal with a lot of insanity and chaos in our lives. And sometimes that sets the standard for what is normal. And sometimes that makes it feel like everything is a crisis, whether it actually is or not. And sometimes it makes it really hard for us to be able to tell when things are actually wrong. I, I mentioned this in a previous episode, it was our, our damaged goods episode, how, how trauma can make you feel pretty shitty about yourself. But we had mentioned in there that Autumn and I at one point had a talk about how, you know, we've done all of this work on our on ourselves. We've been healing for a long time. And we've gotten so used to things going wrong or so used to feeling as though things are going wrong that when things feel too calm, it's almost like we look for things to turn into problems. And I had referenced a scene in Robin Hood and Tights where uh, little John, big dude, he falls into this tiny little stream, only a couple inches of water, and he acts as though he is drowning and about to die. He has an extreme overreaction to it. And sometimes that's what happens when you're healing from trauma. If you've had a very complex trauma history, you sometimes get so used to that being your every day that you create problems where they're not there. And you kind of have to take a step back and, and learn to reality check yourself and learn to recognize when you're just falling back on the same patterns, when you're just so used to things being chaotic or being traumatic or being abusive that you start interpreting things that way, even when they're not, because that's what's normal for you. And that's what you know how to deal with. And it's hard just to to live sometimes without that. It's hard just to accept that, you know, sometimes things things are okay and, and there isn't always a problem. That can be really, really hard to accept when you're just so used to the other shoe dropping and shit falling apart all the time. And I feel like that's especially true with trauma because while some of this is in our heads and our logic is faulty and we're thinking about these things and blowing them out of proportion, unfortunately with trauma, what also comes with that is the physical response that we don't have a lot of control over. So something minor happens in the environment and your body reacts as though it is the traumatic event, as though it is a crisis. And so you get plunged into the feeling of crisis and you've got to fight your way out of it. And that's when, you, when your adrenals are activated and you're stuck in that trigger response, it is an extremely difficult time to try to reality check yourself because everything in your body is just screaming at you. I, I struggle with that to this day. My boyfriend is going through some difficult stuff right now. He's been in a bad mood for a couple days and it's perfectly acceptable and it's perfectly normal because of the things he's struggling with. Because of my history, when negative, I know that's not a great word for him, but when negative emotions run for more than a few minutes, I start to get triggered because that means something horrible is going to happen. That means my life is uprooted. That means, that means, that means, that means, that means. 
that means nothing. That means he's having a hard time. That means I need to trust him to be able to use his coping skills and reach out and allow me to support him because that's what we are now. I have entered into a healthy relationship with a healthy adult and that's my reality. But those vibes I pick up from his emotion trigger my body to jump back into that place that it doesn't need to be. And so that's even more difficult with trauma because it's not just all your anxiety blowing things out of proportion or your depression logically lying to you. It's your amygdala and your brain and your nervous system going, hey, this reminds me of that time we were 12. It must be the time we were 12. And that's, it's not helpful. So yeah, insanity definitely sets your, your, your standard for normality when you're on that healing journey. Another truth that we need to confront as well that we don't hear about enough is healing does not equal happily ever after. Like Ivy and I have said throughout this episode, we have all these things that we're still struggling with. And we've been working on this forever. Like Ivy said, she's been in therapy since she was 15. I've been struggling with a lot of this and trying to work my way around it since I was 13. Decades have gone by and we are still processing this and we have done a lot of work and we have made a lot of progress and we have grown so much but that doesn't mean that everything is now okay. It doesn't mean that we invested X amount of effort and now we get our happily ever after and we don't have to worry about it. Shit still goes wrong. You, you still have these reactions. You still have these struggles. They're reduced in intensity and they're reduced in frequency like we've talked about, but they're still there. That's not just shit still going wrong with, with you as you're on this healing journey when it comes to past trauma. Sometimes the shit that goes wrong is new trauma because for most of us, we have not just experienced one traumatic event or one traumatic period of our life. And then we just work on that and the rest of our, our life is just a cakewalk. That's not generally how it works. A lot of people will experience multiple traumas over the course of their life. So you may get really far along in your healing journey when it comes to a particular trauma that you experienced at a particular time in your life or, or a specific type of trauma, but then you experience a different trauma later in life, or you experience a similar trauma later in life, but now you have to start processing that. It's not just one thing. We generally don't experience just one trauma and then everything from that point forward goes smoothly in life and we can just focus all of our energy on processing and healing from that one trauma. I, I think it's a really unreasonable expectation to think that healing means happily ever after because one, like Autumn was saying, it does take years and years and years of healing and processing and working on it and working through things, but life continues to happen and we will experience other traumas over the course of our life and we'll have to learn how to respond to those and process those. And it's different. Every time you experience a trauma, even if it's similar, it's going to be a little different because you're in a different space in your life and you've been through different things and you have different skills and you are a slightly different person or a, a drastically different person. Every trauma is going to be unique to some degree. And so you're not going to reach an end point. There is no end to your story. And if 
we got to see beyond the happily ever after in fairy tales, I'm sure we would see the same thing is that life goes on and new shit happens and more stuff falls apart. And you learn as you go and you process those things. You don't get to a space where everything is just hunky dory and wonderful and nothing bad ever happens again. And you're perfectly capable of handling every situation and scenario. And I think it's also important to note that even when you do get really healthy and you've developed these coping skills and you are, you're owning it and you're powering through it and you are doing so good, you will still have times when you melt down. You will still have times when you lose your shit. And it's not because you're fucked up. It's not even always because of your trauma. Everybody, everybody, whether they've experienced a ton of trauma or they haven't, whether they're neurotypical or neurodivergent, everybody has limits of what they can handle when it comes to life and stress and overload. Everyone loses their shit from time to time. And I think that's an important thing to remember. And it is one of those, those lesser heard truths is that everybody will lose their shit from time to time. Is that great? No, but it's a reality because we're human and we can only handle so much and it's not just you. So you're not going to get to a space where you handle things perfectly every time. And you don't have to be because we're all just kind of muddling through life and trying to do the best that we can. And we all have meltdowns. We all have breakdowns. We all lose our shit from time to time. And that's okay. It's going to happen to us all. And I think really one of the biggest reasons there is no happily ever after is, like Ivy said, life keeps happening after that happily ever after gets stated by the narrator. But also, there is no finished ideal. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the biggest falsest hopes the mental health industry and the way they frame mental illness really gives us is that idea that there is a cure, that we can be fixed that this can get eradicated. There is no finished ideal for this healing journey. Like we said at the beginning, trauma becomes part of who you are. It just does. And because of that, you are now different. You are now neurodivergent, most likely on some level. And that means you're creating a new you. You're creating to some piece a new society. And there is no finished, done ideal. One of the songs I love uh, that really speaks to this is Incomplete by Alanis Morissette. And if you haven't heard that, you should definitely listen to it. Because just like Ivy had talked about struggling with that idea of, you know, I'm going to fix everything so that I can be better, I can be cured. I struggle with that a long time too. And I think all of us do at some point go through that or are going through that as part of our journey that if we can just reach this, we'll be okay. But it's okay to be incomplete. That's part of the human experience. We are so invested in the end of the journey that we forget to appreciate that the journey we are on. Because the reality is for all of us, the end of that journey is death. That's when we're complete. That's when we're done. That's the finished ideal if you want to have it. And so you don't want that just yet, I hope. You know, I hope there's a lot more steps on your journey. And I love the idea anymore. I've come to love the idea that I am forever incomplete. There is no finished ideal. Because when you stop growing, you start stagnating. And so I want to be forever growing and always changing and adapting because the world changes around me and I can change and adapt to it. And so there is no finished ideal. And that's not only perfectly okay, that is actually a wonderful gift that we have been given. 
I'll actually just finish out this episode by by reading the chorus from that song because it it is such a, a beautiful message. And I've used this song a lot as my as my mantra when life has gotten really hard. I just remind myself that yeah, it is a journey and we keep going and we need to appreciate the process as much as the all overall goal. So the chorus is I have been running so sweaty my whole life, urgent for a finish line, and I have been missing the rapture this whole time of being forever incomplete. There is so much joy in this journey. I know it's hard, but there is so much joy along the way. We learn so much about ourselves. We grow so much. We can have so many beautiful experiences. It's not always an uphill battle. We really do need to appreciate the whole process and try to find ways to love the whole process and to enjoy learning, enjoy growing, enjoy the the entire journey, not just strive for that finish line. I think that is so accurate. And before we go into our normal wrap-up session, I do want to do just a little bit of housekeeping. And I want to remind everybody that we do have the Grandma Bus Prize Contest still going. So please submit your topic ideas either on our website or through social media. Let us know what you want to hear on this podcast because we want to speak to what you want to hear about. And if you want to get more details on the Grandma Bus Prize Contest, just go to our website which I will allow Ivy to then step into all of our connecty bits so you know where to find out more information and how to submit your topic ideas if you'd like. It would be really great, though, if Ivy unmuted her microphone when providing these connecty bits so that you, too, in the listening audience could hear and not just those residing in her apartment. Okay. Anyway, all right. Yeah, you can find that information at www.differentfunctional.com. There is actually a link in our main navigation for the Grandma Bus Prize. If you click on that link, it'll take you to the, to that page. Uh, there's lots of information on there if you want the backstory about why it's called that and uh, what the hell it actually is. That's all there. And there's also a form on there where you can submit your idea. Or if you don't want to go to the website, but you still want to submit your idea, we're on social media. You can find us on Facebook as Different Functional. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok as Different underscore Functional. So you can also submit your ideas there. You can comment on any of our posts or you can send it as a, as a direct message. And then if you are interested in giving us a little bit of financial support. We are on Patreon also as different functional, but regardless of whether you can give financial support, regardless of whether you want to enter for the, uh, the grandma bus prize, we are very appreciative that you are here. We're so glad that we're starting to get some, some solid listeners that you guys are enjoying the show. We would love it if you could rate, review, subscribe, follow, comment, do all that stuff. Tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. Tell your dogs about us. Tell your grandma about us. Tell anybody about us. We don't really care. Shout it from the rooftops. We would just love to get our name out there a little bit more. And you guys could help us out with that. We'd appreciate it. We do appreciate it. And we appreciate you. So thank you for listening. And as always, remember, different does not mean defective. <laughs> <laughs>